lights on. Uh, we're going to continue reading through Nehemiah. Uh, we're up to chapter 5 this week. Uh, so open up your Bibles. If you've got them on your phones or whatever, that's great. Otherwise, if you haven't got a Bible, there should be some in the aisles. And you can take one of those and you can read them now. And if you want to keep it, you can take it home and read it at home as well. So Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interests. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because these demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Amen. Thank you.
shuffle things around a little bit. Perfect. Thank you. It's all good. Thanks, mate. What is the Melbourne weather doing to us? Look out the window there, and it's like perfect one day, putrid the next. Spring has been threatening, hasn't it, for a while now? Yesterday it sort of threatened again, and I thought, yes, it's arrived. People flock to the beach, and then you wake up this morning, you think, my goodness, what's happened? It's like the spring has cried wolf again. Today we're going to talk about justice, and I've got to say as I start that I hate injustice. Um, ever since I've been young, uh, since I was young, a long time ago now, I had a deep-seated hatred for injustice. I hate seeing people oppressed and disadvantaged and poor and downtrodden. It, it, it breaks my heart. And so I've always hated that. And the same uh, sort of side of the coin, different side of the coin, personally speaking, I've always found it very, very difficult and a real struggle when people treat me in a way that's unjust as well. And so this week I started thinking about that and I thought, what is it uh, in my life that's caused me to hate injustice so much? And I thought back to my earliest memories and I could only really pinpoint one circumstance in my childhood. I remember it was at our first house, 18 Goldman Street, Cheltenham, and I remember being on the top bunk of the bunk beds. And I remember hearing my mum in the other room and she was angry about something and she came into the room a couple of moments later and what I don't remember is what she was angry about. What I do remember is that she had a wooden spoon in her hand. <laughs> now, we wouldn't use a wooden spoon these days. We'd get locked up in jail. Um, but I don't think it did me that much harm, except from, you know, some twitching and occasional ducking for no reason. Um, apart from those side effects, no harm whatsoever. Um, but I remember she had the wooden spoon in her hand, and she explained what she was angry about, and I suddenly realised that what she was angry about was not something I had caused. It was my brother. She should have known that. I was the firstborn son. I was the good child. Probably should have stopped after one, but that's a whole different message for another time. But I remember thinking, I'm not in trouble. And what made that even better is that my brother was. And I got to watch him get a smack. And so I was quite excited about that. Um, yes, I am your pastor and I've repented and changed my ways. But I remember having that feeling that my brother was going to get it and I was going to watch. Unfortunately for me on that day, Mum employed the smack first, ask question second uh, method. And before I got a chance to defend myself, I got whacked on the backside. And I remember screaming and yelling and protesting my innocence. And after a, a basic bit of investigative uh, questioning, Mum worked out that it wasn't me who'd done it, but it was my brother Mark who'd committed this heinous crime. And so she apologised to me, but she never smacked Mark. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I felt the burn of injustice and I felt it on my left butt cheek. And it was not a pleasant experience. These, of course, you might be thinking, sitting there today feeling sorry for me and thinking that's the most unjust thing I've ever heard. And I agree with you. It was absolutely terrible. I've been through prayer ministry counselling. I've come through it. It was an awful thing. Uh, but the truth is it's a first world bit of injustice, isn't it? Uh, there's many people in the world that our problems of injustice kind of pale in comparison to so many in the world around us. Today I want to talk about justice. I want to talk about the part that we play as God's people in advocating for and also bringing justice to the world around us. If you've missed the last few weeks, um, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, has been mentioned today already. Today we're up to week four and chapter five. And for those that have missed out so far, you can listen to the podcast but Nehemiah is a man on a mission. He's a man that God has given a vision to return to his hometown of Jerusalem and to help rebuild the walls and the city and the temple and to lead the people back to God. 
And so his vision for the city was that it would be a dwelling place for God's name. Now, for that to happen, of course, the people in that city representing God would need to be people who reflect his character. Now, one key part of God's character is that he is a God of justice. So you read the Bible from the very beginning right through to the very end, you'll see over and over again God looking after the cause of the broken and the hurting and the lost, and his desire is that none should perish. And so if we are reflecting the character of God, his concern will also be our concern. There's a song that we sing quite regularly here at Follow Baptist by Hillsong United called Hosanna. And it's got a line in it that I've always loved. And the line is this, it says, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. What a great lyric that is. What a great declaration from our lives that is. Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. For the kids literally starving to death in third world countries, God cares and so should we. For those who are sold into slavery, God knows them and he cares about them, so should we. For those in our local community, the lonely, the isolated, the disadvantaged, the homeless, the widows, the sick, God knows them all by name. In fact, he knows how many hairs are on their head. And there's nobody that we will ever lay our eyes on that God does not love as precious and valuable. No matter what they've done, no matter what they've been, no matter what they look like, no matter what they smell like, God loves them and God cares for them. And as God's people, so should we. In the same way, it should have been like that for those in the time of Nehemiah in Jerusalem. But as we get to chapter 5, it's plain to see that many of God's people are not reflecting the character of God but rather they're doing the very thing that God hates. They're exploiting the poor and the vulnerable. They are the perpetrators of injustice. Some of God's people in this story that we just heard, predominantly the wealthy, were not only failing to care for those outside of their boundaries, in fact, they were in conflict with all those people, but they're also failing to care for those inside their community. In fact, it was worse than that. They were the ones exploiting them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Therefore... As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. John, uh, Jesus, of course, says in the Gospel of John, a new command I give you, love one another. And so look around today, the people around you, your role in this community as part of this community is to love the people in this community. And so when they're not here for a few weeks, we should notice. When they're struggling, we should know. We should be praying for one another, encouraging one another, caring for one another. When they hurt us, we should be forgiving one another. We should be reconciling with one another. That's what sets us apart from the rest of the world is that we're a community of incredible nonsensical grace that Jesus has shown to us at the cross. Jesus goes on to say, as I have loved you, you must love one another by this, the love that we show for one another. Everyone will know that you are my disciples only if you love one another. What a great challenge that is for us. If we were to apply these criteria to Nehemiah in this part of the story, I wonder whether the truth would confirm that they were followers of God or whether the truth of how they were acting would actually convict them of their sin. I think as we read through the story, the answer becomes pretty obvious. Nehemiah was leading a group of people who were not loving one another and they were not living lives of justice. If you've got your Bible today, you'll see in there that Bibles have headings above each chapter. And in this particular chapter, my Bible says, Nehemiah helps the poor. 
and the poor were within his community. The passage uh, naturally divides into three areas, and I've given them three headings today. Heading number one, the issue. Heading number two, the response. And heading number three, the example. The issue is seen in verse one, if you look at the text today. And to summarize the issue, it's simply this, that within God's people, the, the gap between the rich and the poor is getting bigger and has been caused by God's people. Verse 1, we're introduced to the issue, and in verse 1 to 5, it kind of outlines it all. And it starts in verse 1 by saying these words. It says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. They raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. This is not just a mild irritation. It's not just a slight disappointment. It's not like when you go through KFC and you don't get enough seasoning on your chips. It's, this is a, a serious outcry. This is something that is a cry of desperation against their fellow people. In verse 2, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Now the context is this, that previous to this time, the Babylonians had been in charge and they had scattered God's people right throughout the world. But we heard in in recent weeks that the Persians had now uh, become the world power and they'd allowed the Jews to return from right around the world to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their city and under Nehemiah's leadership to rebuild the wall around the city. Now as with any people group returning, some of the returned exiles were very wealthy people, but some of them were also very poor. And in this circumstance, the wealthy people were exploiting the poor people. So the rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting more and more desperately poor. In the first five verses, there are three groups of people that are mentioned, and all of them are struggling so badly that they couldn't put food on the table. This is a desperate situation. Firstly, there are those who simply to survive were being forced to mortgage their property. Verse 3, it says, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes simply to get grain during this famine. Now, this is not just their houses they were mortgaging. Most of us would have a mortgage on a house, but they're also mortgaging their fields and their vineyards, which was the land that they used to make a living. Now, this is a bit of a heavy passage in some ways, and I wanted to kind of bring it into the 21st century today and and give you a current example. And so I thought of Ben Shrewers, Ben and Liza Shrewers, who are here today. Uh, Ben is a market gardener, and he has taken on a family business that has been passed down the generations, and they grow celery, uh, amongst other vegetables, but pre- predominantly celery. And so a few years ago, his dad, Rob, you would know, Rob Shrews, said, Ben, my son, if you come and work with me, I can always guarantee you a good salary. But years later, Ben has come to realise that he was talking about the vegetable, not the money, and it's all too late. But imagine, Ben, if Ben was part of our community, and our, well, he is part of our community, but imagine uh, our community was called to rebuild our neighbourhood. And Ben was called to leave his, um, his land where they grow their crops and to come and to either help rebuild the city, the wall, or to stand on guard to protect the builders against those who wanted to kill them as they were doing it. Now imagine Ben was called to do that and he, he came and he did that every day faithfully as part of God's vision for this community. I wonder what would happen to his land and to his business. Well, I know that Ben works really long hours and he will tell you he doesn't do that because it's just fun. He does it because salary doesn't grow by itself. It takes a lot of work to build a business and to grow salary and do all those things. And so if he was to leave his land and come and work on some other project, it wouldn't be long before his land was full of weeds, it would uh, go to a big mess, 
and his salary would be gone and his salary would be gone. <laughs> Both of them. And I can just imagine one night, it's getting pretty desperate. They've mortgaged their land now. Um, they can't work there, so they've mortgaged the land to get money to survive. But they've been working on this project and they've spent so much money just staying alive that now they've got to do something else. And I imagine Liza one night saying to Ben, Ben, I'm just going to duck out to the supermarket and, and get some food for dinner tonight so we can prepare dinner. And I can imagine Ben sitting Liza down and saying, oh, Liza, we need to have a chat. Um, you know how we mortgaged our business, our land? Um, well, we've lost our business now um, and we've got no money left. And so in order for you to go down to the supermarket and get food for tonight, we're going to have to put a second mortgage on our home. This is what's happening for these people. It's a desperate situation. That would be a horrible circumstance for anybody, and it was horrible for these people. So the first category were people that were mortgaging their land, their houses and their vineyards and their um, fields. The second category I mentioned in verse 4. It says, Still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. And so these people, they own fields and vineyards, but not only were they making no money from those, but in order to pay the exorbitant tax that was being charged by the king, they've had to go out to Westpac and say, Westpac, I know we're not doing that well with the business, but we need to get another loan just so that we can eat. And so they're not making money, the business is going backwards, uh, they're not getting any food, so they've had to go and borrow money just to pay the king's taxes. Once again, it would be a very difficult situation. The third, third category is in, uh, introduced to us in verse 5. And it would be fair to say this is the worst category of all. It says, Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. In other words, they become second wives for those they owed money to. But we are powerless. Because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. I'm going to invite my family up the front today. Uh, most of you would know Kim, my wife, and Adele, and Taylor, and Annika, and Lenny. And they're always really excited about coming up the front. So um, they always say, what for? And I say, you'll find out in the service. So they've got no idea what's about to happen. But I'm going to invite them up. And they can stand along the, the platform here. And I love my family. Kim and I love our kids, and these are the most important people on earth to us. And it'd be fair to say there's pretty much nothing we wouldn't do for them, to see them flourish in life, to see them safe, to see them grow to know the Lord. We would do anything we possibly could um, for our kids. This situation in Jerusalem would have been no different. Um, These people would have loved their kids. We so often think uh, of ancient people that somehow they were different, and it's just a story, and somehow they don't love their kids as much as we love our kids. But there's no doubt that the people in Jerusalem at this time would have loved their kids just like we love our kids. And so this is a horrible situation for them, because before them, they had one of two options. Option number one was to starve to death. Option number two was to sell the kids. I want you to pause for a moment. Some of you might think, that sounds like a good deal. (laughs) But most of you love your kids. I want you to pause for a moment. Just imagine how that would feel. I'm either going to starve to death or I'm going to sell my kids. I wonder if the husband and wife had conversations like, what if we just sell one kid? If we just sell one kid, maybe we could have enough to get by. You know what the next question is, don't you? Which kid are we selling? (laughs) Well, Adele, she's uh, very clean. She's very clean and tidy, and so if you're looking for someone to clean your house, maybe you'd want to buy Adele and put her OCD into some good work. 
get the house all cleaned up. Um, but maybe your house is already clean. And well, Taylor, Taylor's very intelligent. And maybe you need your kids tutored. So you think, well, I'll take Taylor and she can teach my kids some stuff at home. Or maybe you want your house decorated. Um, Annika is our creative one. And so she could paint some paintings for your wall or make some pretty dresses for your husband or for your kids. Um, <laughs> she's very creative. And so you might say, I want Annika. She's the interior designer. And she's the graphic designer. She's the person that I want to come. So I'll take Annika. Or maybe you want Lenny. Um, Lenny doesn't do much at this stage, um, but he's very cute. And uh, in fact, he's very good at motivating slaves. <laughs> Here they are. He motivates them very well. He just sits on the couch, leans back and says, I want a drink. And they all just snap to attention and do it. So maybe Lenny would be the best one to motivate some other slaves. But imagine this, uh, this decision. I mean, we're having a bit of fun with it. Um, we will have an auction after the service, but we're just really having a bit of fun with it, but for these people, this was a serious situation. Starve to death or sell the kids. Why? Because we must get grain. We must get grain. So desperate that it's life or death. Now, at the same time, imagine in the same community, there's another family. I'm going to invite the Sikantha family up today. They're going to come up. They also don't know what's going on, so welcome up. These guys are a lovely family. Uh, You've got Sanjeev and Priya, and you've got Sonia and Sahana who got baptised last week, which is awesome. And you've got little Joshi. And they are an amazing family. Um, but just imagine, I don't know their financial circumstances. I don't need to know them. But just imagine these guys were in the same community and they were filthy rich. I mean, they had multiple businesses. <laughs> don't laugh too hard. Multiple businesses that are making a big profit. They've got millions in the bank. They've got a property portfolio, multiple houses in Lakeside Pakenham. Um, things are going really well. They're living the high life. And they're in the same community. But it's actually, they're in the same community at the same time that me and my family, we're selling our kids. But it's actually the Sikanthas that are charging us the interest that's causing us to sell our kids. Now, you can talk to them later on. You can sort them out. That's why I've got them up here. I'll make it clear, this is just an example. We're not selling our kids. Sanjay's going to come and take the TV instead. But this is just an example. But imagine if we were selling our kids because the interest these guys were charging us was so excessive that we had no other choice. It'd be fair to say in a community that would be a bit messed up. That would be morally wrong. One family living the high life, causing the other family to sell their kids seems so wrong that brothers and sisters would do that to one another in the same community, God's people, same vision. And yet the rich and the poor, the gaps were getting bigger and bigger. These guys can sit down again. Let's give them a round of applause. If you need a loan, send us a canthers later. If you need a house cleaner, see me. What they were doing was morally wrong, but it was also wrong, wrong according to God's law. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25 says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Do not charge any interest. And so it wasn't just morally wrong, but it was in direct disobedience to God's law to treat one another with love and with justice. It was the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer within God's community. And it says in verse 6, the poor were powerless to do anything about it. So this is the issue. 
becomes very obvious in the first part of the passage. The issue is exactly this, that just injustice is happening within the community of God's people. But when Nehemiah sees injustice, it's important to note what his response is. It's a response that's important to note because it will help us to know how we should respond to injustice in our world as well. The response is seen in verses 6 to 13. And once again, we see in this story that Nehemiah is a great leader. We've seen him in recent weeks. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of strategy. He's a man of faith. He's a man of repentance. And now we see he's a man of justice. And in the face of injustice, he doesn't bury his head in the sand. He doesn't pretend it's not happening. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't ignore it. He responds to it. And so we've seen the issue. Now we see his response. And the first response is he responds with righteous anger. In verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered these things in my mind. And then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. Now, this is what we know as righteous anger. It would be fair to say that all of us in this community, uh, in our own lives, would be prone to anger from time to time. Um, most of us try and excuse it and make out that it's righteous anger. But there's times when I get anger and I know it's not righteous, like on the golf course, when I want the ball to go that way and it goes that way, and when it won't go in the hole. Like at basketball, I sometimes feel the anger building up, and it's mainly because Braden doesn't pass, um, <laughs> which is what he accuses me of, but I have the microphone today. And so sometimes I get angry when the ref makes the wrong call. Sometimes I get angry when I go through the drive through and they, they say, I want you to wait in the waiting bay, and I think all I ordered was a small fries. Why am I waiting in the waiting bay? And and sometimes we get angry and we we try and talk ourselves into believing that it's justified, but it's actually just sinful. I think in my life, if I was to break down my anger into percentages, I reckon 99% of it would be sinful and 1% would be righteous anger. And yet so often we live our lives like 99% is justified and 1% is, is not. And so it's really important that we understand the difference between anger and righteous anger. The Bible says that we should be slow to anger and we should be quick to forgive. However, there are times when anger is warranted. John Piper says that righteous anger is being angry at what makes God angry. Righteous anger is being angry at what makes God angry. You might remember in Matthew 21 and John 2, the story of Jesus going into the temple. And this is not meek and mild Jesus. This is angry Jesus. And he goes into his father's house that he says is meant to be a house of prayer and yet they've turned it into a marketplace. It's people exchanging money and selling birds and, and other animals. And, and he's furious because he's angry about what makes his father angry. And so it says he gets three cords and he fashions them into a whip. Can you imagine Jesus in the temple if he came in here today and we'd set it up as a marketplace going down the aisles with a big whip And he's whipping people and he's whipping the animals and he's pushing the tables over and there's coins going everywhere. What we see in that story is that Jesus is angry and it's righteous anger. And there's times in life where anger is not just a justifiable response, but rather it's the only appropriate response. And for Nehemiah, this was one of those times. I was very angry, so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we've brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. I want you to do yourselves a favor this week and when you get home, Google this. Google compilations of guilty dogs. (laughs) You will find dozens of videos 
of very guilty dogs where the owner just holds up a, a chewed piece of couch or a, a chewed thong, if you're listening to this in America, a flip-flop, and, and they hold it up and all they have to say is, what's this? And, and the dog will go... And there's one really funny one I watched where one dog sort of just looks away and the other one sort of hides behind the other one and he just says, what's this? And they just sort of cower there. And I remember this happening in my own life a few years ago. My working with my dad as a carpenter and we were doing a house on a farm and dad had his pride and joy there, which was his panel van. And there was only one thing he loved more than his HZ 350 Chev panel van and that was the stuffed little toy wombat on his dashboard. And I remember one day my dog thought it would be good to jump through the window of the panel van, scratching the paintwork on the way through, and then to grab hold of that little wombat and maul it to death. And meanwhile we were working inside and we came out to the car and there's just like blood and guts or fluff everywhere. And I remember my dad being really angry and he gave my dog a whack, I think it was actually a kick. Uh, I'm not painting my parents in a good light, am I? Like wooden spoons kicking, um, but that's what they did back in the day, and we were difficult kids, so you don't blame them, but I remember him kicking the dog, and the dog went, and, and ran off, and, and people tried to tell me that dogs have a memory of seven minutes. Three years later, I could pick up the replacement wombat and say, what's this, and she just, <laughs> they don't forget. They remember a foot up the backside, that's for sure. Our dog proved it. But that's what's happening with these people. It's the same at home, isn't it? Like when sometimes I put Lenny to bed and there's one Tim Tam left and I'm just, I get the kid to bed eventually and I want that Tim Tam and I come down and it's gone. And I say, where's the the last Tim Tam? And uh, all four people there, including my wife, um, they all look guilty, but usually three of them will will, will loudly say, wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me. But there's one person who says nothing. (laughs) And when they say nothing, you've nailed the guilty party. And you can exact the appropriate punishment. (laughs) And that's exactly what was happening in this story. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Nehemiah responds with anger, but he also responds with a challenge. In verse 9, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I want you to see that he challenges them in two areas. First of all, he challenges them in the fear of God which the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. Now, when I say the fear of God, I'm not like talking about cowering in the corner like a dog that's just chewed a toy wombat. I'm talking about a a deep reverence and respect for God, that he is an audience of one, that everything we do in life is to please God, that we respect him and revere him so much that we want to live our lives for him. God is, we know, omnipresent. He's omniscient. He is everywhere at once. He is all-knowing. And so God sees what we do with our lives, not only in public, but also in private. And of course, that can be a positive or a negative, can't it? God sees what we Google on the internet. God knows when we gossip, he hears it. When we rip people off, he sees it. But on the positive, probably my favorite verse in all the scripture is 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I love that. When we fully commit ourselves to God, his eyes are ranging throughout the earth, looking for people like us so that he can strengthen us. God sees how we live our lives. So Nehemiah reminds them to fear God and reminds them that not only God sees their wicked deeds, but also when they do the right things, he'll see that too. And so he challenges them to fear God. But the second challenge he gives them is to avoid the reproach of their Gentile enemies. Now, reproach means disappointment or disapproval, which seems kind of strange, doesn't it? 
I found it interesting that their enemies, led by Sanballat and Tobiah, do you remember them from last week? Dumb and Dumber, remember them? Uh, they are opposing God's people with the Arabs and a whole bunch of other people now. And yet Nehemiah is wanting the people to act in a way that they would not disappoint their enemies. What's going on? Well, I think Nehemiah is keeping his eye on the big vision. What's the big vision? That they were to become a city that reflects the character of God, that they were to be a dwelling place for his name. And they were very aware, or Nehemiah was very aware, that the world was watching. And that's a sobering reality for us as God's people. There are so many people who are no longer in churches because of the way God's people behave when they were in churches. They manipulated, they abused, they hurt, they failed to forgive. And there's many people outside of the church that maybe have never set foot inside a church, but they look at the church and they say, no thanks. They see hypocrites. They see people who are judgmental. They see people who, who say they believe one thing, but they don't live it out. And so for us as a, as a people of God, it's a challenge to remind ourselves that people are always watching. And that can be scary, but let me tell you, I think it's a great opportunity. It's an opportunity to change people's perception on what they think of Christ, what they think of the church, what they think of us. It's a great chance for us to live the way Christ has asked us to live, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that people will look at us and go, wow, they are radically different. They are world upside down type of people. I want to be part of a community like that. That's the opportunity we have here in Officer and Pakenham and the surrounding region to be that kind of people. And so he challenges them to fear God. He challenges them to avoid the reproach of their enemies. And so he's a man who has seen the issue. He's a man who has brought the response. And his third response is repentance. Verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. We've already seen in Nehemiah's character and the story that he's a man with a humble and repentant heart. He's a man who doesn't shift blame, divert blame. He's a man that steps up to the plate and takes responsibility. Remember in chapter 1, he was in Persia as the cupbearer, and all the way over in Jerusalem, it was a giant mess. And instead of just blaming the Israelites, he said, no, no, it's not just the Israelites, it's me. It's my father's household. We've done things that are wicked in your, in your sight, God. He takes responsibility, and that's exactly what we see again here. He takes responsibility for his part in the injustice. He says, I, my brothers, our men, let us stop charging interest. He himself has been part of the injustice, and now he's stepping up and saying, no longer. We're going to put a line in the sand. We're going to put a peg in the ground. We're going to be people of justice. Verse 11, he says, give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, and also the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. Now, remember the families up here, particularly my family before, they're selling their kids. We're selling our kids. Remember? House cleaner, creative, all that sort of stuff. We're selling the kids. It's a heartbreaking situation. Now, Nehemiah steps up as a leader and he says, give them back their houses, give them back their vineyards, give them back their fields, give them back their children. Can you imagine that moment being in this family, these people struggling so badly? Can you imagine the impact that one man had when he stood up for justice? And he said, no longer are we going to be those people. This is the impact that we can have on people's lives, uh, in our local community, in the world around us, as we take a stand against injustice. I love the people's response to Nehemiah's leadership. Before they were silent because they were guilty. Now they're stepping up as well in verse 12. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. 
we will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they'd promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and I said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. I love this. They're being rebuked and challenged. And they say, Amen. And they praise the Lord. There's no resistance. There's no reluctance. There's repentance and action. And in the process of returning to the Lord. And that's a challenge for us. When we walk off track, when we do things that don't please God, rather than to be proud and stubborn and say, No, we're to be people who are open-hearted, repentant, uh, repentant humble people. They say, yes, God, I'll change what I'm doing with the help of your Holy Spirit and I'll follow you. And it says, and the people did as they had promised. And so there's this issue, which is injustice. There's a response, which is anger, a challenge and repentance. And then finally, there's the example that Nehemiah sets. Verses 14 to 19 says, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until the 32nd year, 12 years in total, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allocated to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people, and they took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. We're not meant to be those kind of leaders. But out of, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to work on this wall. All the men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Uh, We see this sort of inclusive generosity. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. What a great example this man is. As the governor, Nehemiah had certain privileges and rights, including gourmet food and choice wine. The previous leaders had had taken those rights and they charged 40 shekels as well, which is equivalent of about $20,000 to a group of people who literally couldn't get grain to eat. Nehemiah couldn't do that. He couldn't take what he was entitled to when his brothers and sisters in the city were starving. And so he laid down his rights. He leveraged and what he had in life, to use it to bless those who had less than he did. It's worth noting that Nehemiah's decision to help the poor was not just a once-off decision. It wasn't a temporary fad. It wasn't just a 40-hour famine. It was a lifelong, heartfelt commitment to justice to reflect the very heartbeat of God. But as a leader, you can't take people where you haven't been yourself. And I love this about him. Nehemiah has identified the issue. He's overseen a response, and he now leads by example. When I think about this, I get excited about what we can be as a church. I get excited about the future that we have. I look forward to hearing more and more testimonies of how Jesus has worked in people's lives through Follow Baptist Church. Last week we heard testimony of Judy, someone we met at the food van, coming to know Jesus, having needs met, feeling part of a community. And it's so exciting to see people work through us, see Jesus work through us in people's lives. I can't wait to hear people say, when we had a vo- no voice at all, they gave me a voice. When we had needs, they met them. When all hope was gone, they pointed me to Christ. When we were powerless, they were a group of people who reflected God's character and they stood for justice. Whether it's through things like the Babes Project or a hospital ministry, whether it's through a sponsor child or a food van, a breakfast club or a care pack, whether it's each of us just looking out for people every day who are less privileged than us, that we can help and bless and care for. The disadvantaged, the poor, 
the lost. In the face of injustice, may we be a church like Nehemiah. May we not be people with our heads in the sand, but may we see the issue. May we respond with righteous anger in the face of injustice. May we challenge people and one another to something greater. May we be repentant when we fall short. And may we set the example to our community as a dwelling place for God's name. The last verse of the passage, Nehemiah, says these words, Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. May that be our prayer as well as we care for those in our lives.